Welcome into this Five Clubs conversation. I'm Gary Williams, the golf analyst. When you consider all the people who talk about the game, who analyze the game, they played the game. All of them played it at a very high level, some at the absolute highest levels, major championship winners, members of Ryder Cups and President's Cups. The guy who's going to join me, he didn't win a major, but he contended in majors. He has been an essential voice analyzing the game for decades. He did it for years on live from battling on a nightly basis in some of the best debates, thoughtful conversations that we've seen about the game of golf. And most recently, over the last five to seven years on CBS, doing live golf. I'm talking about Frank Nabilo. Frank's life in the game, his career being cut short by injury, his anger, somewhat bitter about that ending in the manner that it did. And doing the television that he's done, he's a thoughtful guy. His thoughts on golf and lots of other stuff coming up right now. This Five Clubs conversation is brought to you by Golf Pride. Golf Pride knows that a grip isn't only a grip. It's the one piece of equipment in your hands on every single shot. And you might not know it, but it has a huge impact on your game. In fact, Golf Pride recently conducted a first-of-its-kind study showing the impact of worn versus new grips. It showed that, on average, a focused grip of adept golfers gained an extra two yards of carry when they played with new grips. So what are you waiting for? Refresh your grips. Refresh your game. Visit GolfPride.com today to learn more. Golf Pride. Respect the grip. And with that, we welcome in, look at the affable <laughs> Frank Nabolo. How are you, my friend? Uh, Gary, I can't believe it. Yeah, no, great thanks. Yourself? Doing very well. You know, we're, we're getting close to the holidays. How are you at the holidays? Are you cheery? <laughs> Well, you know me too well. No, I'm never cheery. Ask my wife. She thinks I'm the most miserable person in the world. No, I, I love it. Um, I think the end of a long year, you know, you look forward to it. I, I actually get the lawnmower out. I start cutting the grass. I like to get outside. Uh, we have a dog now. His name's Bison. World's smallest bison. We're always cat people. And um, it's fun. I, I, I love being at home. I really do. Okay. Now, what you just said, you just said something so earth shattering because I had a knockdown drag out discussion with you yes. in, a, in a production trailer years ago about dogs and cats. Yes, I know. And, 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 and you got, and, and you would apt on occasion to get a little defensive about things. And I said, why are you a cat person? And you said, why are you a damn dog person? Yep. And, and you, you said flat out, I'm not picking up that shit. Well, look at you. Now you are. Gary, have you ever heard of that expression that people change? <laughs> yes. This is yes. maybe the, the most evolution that's ever happened to you. You've evolved in a way that I didn't think was achievable. I'm actually blaming my cats now. Sadly, we had to put one away last year. But, you know, cats are always precocious. And in the morning, they wake up in, a, uh, in an angry mood, pretty much like me, right? And... 
bison, who's the world's smallest bison, every single day he wakes up in a great mood. And I didn't think that was possible. So, Gary, after all these years, I admit you were right. Well, that I love that. Um, <clears throat> now, what what what's the breed? It's called a Cavapoo. Um, during COVID, uh, Selena, my wife, yep. her niece, who, who was a model, she stayed with us for a little while. And uh, she, sadly, she had a dog and we had two cats at that particular stage. So we had to try and integrate two dogs, sorry, one dog with two cats. And I was furious. But then time changes everybody. And within a couple of months, um, Humphrey, that, who was also a Cavapoo, was my TV buddy. And then one of the saddest days is when she took him back to California after COVID. But um, that's really what changed. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to get to present day, but I want to go back with you because, um, you know, lives, <laughs> lives in any, any sport, in any endeavor, everybody's got a story. Um, and I think your story is particularly interesting. Um, when you were young and your parents were going you, through a divorce, mm. um, golf was... I'm not, these are not your words. I'm, I don't know if it was a, a respite, a salvation, uh, a release, an escape, whatever it happened to be. Why, why golf? It's a great question. As a matter of fact, I was just in New Zealand uh, before I went to the Asia Pacific Amateur. It was my mother's 87th birthday. And we sort of actually revisited that. Um, I think a lot of people out there can identify. I was, you know, between the, you know, I was like 14, 15 when my parents were having trouble. I'd started playing golf when I was 13. I played a lot of other sports. So I think when you come into a household and there is a lot of uncertainty, you know, with the the, the family structure, you feel lost. <clears throat> you blame yourself sometimes. Have I been naughty? Have I misbehaved? Am I the reason? So the beauty of golf, especially uh, over every other sport, is is normally you get to play with older older people, adults. So on a Saturday morning, some of the members at my local club would pick me up and they would drive me to the golf course. So not only did I get to hit golf balls, but I also interacted with other people. Uh, they're much older, much wiser. And I realized the world wasn't such an easy, evil place. Um, my parents subsequently divorced. And the one constant that stayed with me were, was golf. So with that, I developed friendships. I developed uh, a different way of looking at life. I didn't blame myself for what happened to my parents. I also subsequently went through a divorce, as you know. So I, I realized that, you know, we are we are very human. Um, my dad passed away a couple of years in the middle of COVID. I couldn't go to the funeral because of that. And when I was in New Zealand, actually, I, I did visit his grave. And it's weird how all of those sort of 40, 40 odd years starts mm. to replay. But um, it was tough at the time, but it, it changed me as a person and, and golf through my whole life. Every time uh, something good or bad happened, um, it was involved in golf. You know, when I could no longer play through rheumatoid arthritis, I felt cheated. I felt like the game had sort of deserted me. And then lo and behold, just down the road, when I got to meet you, that golf channel was there. Mm. And, and so for some miraculous reason, golf always gave me a better next day. So Frank, it was more, it was more the connection with other people, particularly adults. Is it like you you love tennis, um, mm. and you love tennis as a kid, but tennis doesn't give you connection. You 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 stand on the other side of something. There's nothing. There's nothing communal about it. Um, there's not. There's no real fellowship. Golf. There's fellowship. Was it that more so than the discipline itself? Um. 
it's interesting there because the analogies that, that I would say, ten, tennis was my first love in, in an individual sport. Both endeavors are very selfish. You're, and you're absolutely right. On one, you're on the other side of the net. The other one, you have to, you have the communal rule book. So we both police ourselves during the course of a round of golf. But I thrived on the competition. So I guess going back to when my parents split up, um, you fight. I think you have to. You know, like anybody in a tough situation, you dig your heels in, and you and you fight. So I really enjoyed the competitive aspect, whether it was tennis or golf. But um, I also love the technical aspect because. Tennis is a, a very technical game, as is golf. So I, I love the the stroke in tennis the same way I, I to this day I love the golf swing, um, the nuances of it. Just being down at Royal Melbourne, seeing these young players play, and just admiring. You know, they, they have club at speed that's that's elite. That's you know the the PGA Tour averages 171 miles an hour ball speed, and and these guys are you know just tipping close to 180 mile an hour ball speed. They're ready. They're good enough. And, you know, it makes you think back uh, to they just want to compete. They want to play. So so for me, yeah, I love the competition. But you're right. I love the fact that that golf had this thing called a rule book, which I still respect today. And you get out there, you can play the same golf course, whether it's in a group at a different time, in a major championship, in a club championship, you name it. And and you get to sign your name at the end of the day for your work. The, um, it's important. The, 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 you know, I, I played competitive junior tennis, and I was okay with confrontation. Um, golf, it doesn't, it's not inclined to be that way unless you're in a match play situation, which you're going to play some as a, as a kid. Were you comfortable with confrontation when you were young? <laughs> you know me too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I was, <clears throat> I was six foot when I was sixteen, so I never grew an inch after that. But. So when I played other sports like rugby, rugby league, which is you know a religion in New Zealand, uh, New Zealand just lost the Rugby World Cup. I'll say it before you do, and of course it was to South Africa. So you know you learn early on. I mean, you took your knocks, and and yeah, I, I think coming from a uh, Slavic family that had immigrated basically to New Zealand, um, yeah, it was you were treated differently. So you you, you learn to not physically fight all the time. You just learn to fight for your position in life. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And and for me, golf, I, I enjoyed the fight. I enjoyed whether it's trying to salvage a round of 75 and somehow turn it into 74. Uh, an old Australian coach by the name of Alex Mercer, who taught Steve Elkington, had that. He said, you know, it's so. if you really want to be good at this game, learn to turn a 75 into a 73. You and I'm um, like, oh, that seems weird. Uh, yeah. But that's, that's the key. The, the, you know, you mentioned Royal Melbourne, and I know that, it was, you know, I love hearing about these seminal moments in, in golfers' lives when they see what is going to be required of them, and they never forget it. And I know that you have said that when you went to Australia, in particular the Sandbelt, when you were a late teen, that you're like, Jesus, okay, this is, this is as good as it gets. Like, I have to get a lot better if I think I can do this as a vocation. And you turned pro at 19. Was that the place where you said, okay, I think I can do it. I want to do it. What was it more? Was it more, I think I can do it or I want to do it? Um, to be honest, it, it wasn't either of that um, because of my parents' situation. I couldn't afford to to stay an amateur player. Okay. Oddly enough, when I worked on the Champions Tour early on in my golf career, I ran into John Mahaffey, who's still a friend today. And the same thing happened with Mahaffey. 
Mahaffey couldn't afford to remain an amateur. So you take the plunge, and, and I think that's where naivety comes into play. You don't think that there's this big open world that you might struggle and it's going to cost a lot of money. You just say, hey, golf, uh, how hard can it be? I'll go and play. But to your question on Royal Melbourne, yeah, that was the first litmus test because it's it's a little bit like stats today. A lot of the shot link stats we see are on American golf courses. And they're right. You know, I, I was... Uh, texting with Lou Stagner yesterday. He's brilliant at that. And I use a lot of his stuff sometimes, but to me, it's very much American golf courses. You know, they're 25, 30 yards wide. There's rough. There's actually bunkers in rough, which I hate. And there's greens that are fairly receptive. They all run around 12 on the stint meter. So it is, you can really nail it down to closer to the green is better and, and likewise. But then when you go to a place like an open championship or Island um, and you play a links type golf course where you go to a sandbelt golf course like Royal Melbourne, Con Kingston Heath, Commonwealth, Metropolitan area. There's so many of them there. It's different. You realize how precise you have to be. And actually 20 feet left of the flag is actually a really good shot. And actually angles do count on those golf courses just because of the firmness, the way in which the bunkers are cut in. But we don't have stats for those golf courses. So we exist in the shot link era which is very much a wooded, wooded golf course that plays very linearly. But to, to your question, yeah, so when I first went to rural Melbourne, I didn't realize how good you had to be to play courses like that. Uh, I'd played shorter golf courses, um, and, and I'm like, wow. You know, and you start to see players like Biosteris. I remember that's the first golf course I ever saw him at, hitting a bunker shot on, on in those days, what was the 13th hole on the composite golf course. And I'd never seen a, a bunker shot be hit so beautifully. And, and you saw guys like Greg Norman, the way in which they drove the ball, um, the Graham Marshes, the world, David Graham, mm. Nicholas, Johnny Millers. And you're like, wow, this is, this is good. So my, my sandbat experience was not just the golf courses, but the players that I saw playing them. The, um, the, the European tour qualifying school, you know, the PGA tour is going to have, they're bringing back what used to exist. And I found it to be a very provocative, um, television i don't want to call it entertainment uh because it's excruciating that week for you was a key week that experience because people that you had kinships with suddenly became real bona fide adversaries take me back to the the european tour qualifying experience and how cutthroat and how much friction existed for a week like that with with livelihoods on the line Wow, I'd, I'd nearly forgotten about that. Um, I had a good friend. His name was uh, Mike Harwood. He was runner-up to Ian Baker Finch in the 1991 Open Championship. Also won um, Volvo Masters, British PGA. He was, was a heck of a player, but he was a little older than me. You know, we were starting up, and he happened to be my roommate. And, you know, you start the week thinking, well, you know, hey, I can't even remember if it's 50 cards or 25, to be honest, at that particular time. But we thought we were pretty good players. We'd played well in Europe, um, just in a couple of events, the odd one that we played in. I'd played some state opens in America on my way across. Uh, I'd played all right in Australasia for a few years. So you, you just think the natural step. Well, I think we were playing cards at night. Like, you know, it's like snap, right? I mean, how angry can you get at snap? And we nearly came to blows. And it was purely just the week trying to catch up to you, that you realize that, perhaps one or neither actually might get their European tour card and all the bad emotions. It's, it's not that you were jealous for a friend. 
you were just jealous that it might not be you. Mm. Uh, and and then you thought all the things, you know, are you good enough? Uh, maybe I get a bad bounce. You look at all the other names there and, and you realize for the first time in your golfing career, it really is a, a, a divisive mark that you are either going to make it or your career is going to be radically different and you don't know how long it's going to be stonewalled for. So, yeah, by the end of the week, it was you didn't even talk to your best friends. It it was bizarre. It's the it's probably the worst experience I've had as a human being from a uh, kinship point of view. Mm. But but it was a real growing up. Fortunately, we both got through. And then Sunday night, it was a relief. I remember we we're going out for 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 dinner and we had a drink, and it was like it was like the week didn't happen, but we both know it did. When you start to ascend in Europe and you're you're being productive and you're getting results. Where was America on your horizon? Where was the United States and the PGA Tour uh, in in your worldview of where you wanted to be three years, five years, whatever? What was America to you then? It, it was the Holy Grail, but I'd had a um, the nine. I played the, the the Eisenhower Trophy in 1978, and Jay Siegel uh, was a member of that team, <clears throat> and. Um, I remember him saying, you know, do you want to go to college in America? And at that stage, not a single New Zealand player had gone to college. So for me, as a New Zealand only had 3 million people in those days. So it just seemed like, well, no one else has done it. There's no way. You know, America was, it, it was, it was out of the question. So I think if you talk to the Nick Prices of the world, uh, the Greg Normans, um, David Graham, uh, that generation of player, it was the last step and everybody made the same sort of route. South African players went to Europe and Nick Price would say, if you can win, you know, five times in Europe, you only had to win double in America. You know, that's the way he thought of endorsement money when you were that good. Uh, you know, Europe always looked after Europeans. He thought that America was a fairer for, for non-American players. But you were never going to be treated the same as an American player, but you'd be treated better than a foreign player in Europe. But it was always the last step. So we just simply followed everybody else's route that had gone that way. You know, Australasia, you went to Asia. That's where I first met Payne Stewart. Actually, I remember the Malaysian Open. That's where he met Tracy, actually. Um, a lot of players, you'd see them in, in, in Asia. They would go back to America and we would go on our way to Europe and sometimes Japan. But but for me, it, it, it was always on the horizon, but it was always like, are you are you, are you you good enough? Are you really good enough? Because that's the final step. So yeah, but it was always the carrot. The, uh, the 1994 U.S. Open, I, I, I grew up loving the U.S. Open. I thought guys in blue blazers with bucket hats. I thought P.J. Boatwright was a rock star. I mean, what a golf nerd I am. But But back then, People you were unfamiliar with, you really were unfamiliar with them. Golf Channel was born in 95. We mm. didn't have the proliferation of television, the Corn Ferry Tour, and watching the European Tour, and the oddball event from, from Asia. So there were a lot of people who did not know you in 1994 when you pop up. And it's romantic. It's like, look at this guy. What a story. And you know, as a television guy, whether it's Tommy Roy or Lance Barrow or Seller Shy, like... Find out what this guy's story is, because we're going to tell this story on television. 
What was the story like for you that week as you wouldn't go away and you found yourself with a late time on a Sunday? What was that week like? Um, it was tough. Uh, I was, for one of the reasons, really, that, that I guess, you know, you might as well tell the truth. I mean, I was going through a divorce. Mm. It was very, very hard. I was making a career change. Um, the, the European tour had fought very hard and they'd finally, for the very, very first time, got the USGA to accept the top 15 of the European money list. That was the very, very first year. So uh, Ken Schofield, who, you know, good friend of mine as well, Ken had fought very, very hard for that. And so it was like he wanted us to go. He says, finally, we've got this exemption. Up until then, it was only the top money winner. Like, for example, players like Felder, you'd be surprised how few US Opens he played in prior to winning his first Masters. So you were denied playing these championships. So it was, so it was a big deal. So I went over there and I, I, I remember sort of staying in the hotel. I, I love the golf course. I just loved how hard it was. And I just thought, hey, I'm playing a US Open. I was playing some pretty good golf in Europe. I'd, I'd, I'd won a few tournaments. And I'm like, let's just let's just play. And then lo and behold, on Sunday, you know, I remember making like a 25 footer on Saturday and I get drawn with Ernie, who was one of my good mates in the final round um, in the last group. So it, that part was a little surreal. But, you know, I the interesting thing was, even though I'm, I think I'm 10 years older than Ernie, I wasn't ready to win a U.S. Open mentally, but he was for him. It was like, why? Why wouldn't I? So, you know, I think I shot my 75 or something like that on Sunday, but it was um, it was great. And then people picked up on the story uh, when I'd won in Sweden, I think for the first time in Europe, uh, Pirate Ancestry came up and, you know, it was I did a stupid magazine thing and I put an eye patch on in Europe. And so someone with a little invested, investigative, you know, journal, journal, you know, Sure. Uh, research found that repurposed that and i don't know it was it was a it was a good story and i dined out on it for a little while but it it was it was fun and and it was the start of getting into the masters and some other things it, and it was another kickstart in my career but yeah 95 us open was was huge in my career the um you know you cool. you said that that ernie was ready and you weren't mm. you embraced the grind you liked the the hardest golf courses. You thought that 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 suited you, but you didn't. You didn't particularly have a big ego about yourself as a player. You you looked at other guys. and You're like, God, you really see yourself as being like you. I've heard you say, I, I didn't see myself that way. I had to take on the golf course, embrace the grind. Why do you think you didn't have a big ego? Uh, probably have a bigger ego now. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just your upbringing, you know, coming from New Zealand, we had a, it's a syndrome called the tall poppy syndrome. If you thought you were good, you were cut down to size. And, and I remember going to Metropolitan Golf Course in Melbourne for a, a, a big tournament. It's called the Victorian Open. A lot of people played there. And I went to go on the range. And in those days, you know, you had your shag bag and you caddy picked up your golf balls. So I'm about to go on the range and there's Greg Norman, Lee Trevino, Biasteris, uh, David Graham, Jack Newton when he was a hell of a player. Um, there's a couple other players, but I, I I put it down. I started hitting, and I could hear, like, gunshots coming out of my left ear from the shots that they were hitting. I, I called my caddy, and I just picked my shag bag up, and I went to the putting green. I'm like, this is weird. And, and I remember same thing, going to – the Open Championship for the first time in Troon, Tom Weiskopf, who 
sadly passed away was an idol of mine. And I'd seen him in Adelaide in one of the tournaments and got to meet him. And it was great. He was, he never, ever disappointed me as a man or as a friend. And I remember going to the range. It was the same thing. You know, you go there and they're the who's who. You remember in New Zealand, we only got a couple of tournaments a year. So these people, they were on your screen. They were stars. And when you picked up a golf magazine, which normally came like a month or two late, their pictures were on those magazines. They were stars. So for me, just like any other kid, I was overawed with uh, other when, when you when you play like in a US Open and you see Jack Nicholas is playing in the same tournament. I, I remember playing in a I can't remember the name of the, the, the tournament, but there was a, an Australian player called Ted Ball. And same thing, you're playing all right. And, and I see Jack Newton, Bob Shearer, Stuart Jinn, Greg Norman, David Graham. I see all these names on the leaderboard. And remember this, uh, Ted Ball, who I was playing with, he goes, what's wrong, son? I'm like, I, I ain't ever going to beat them. And he goes, and I was 19. And he goes, what do you think they thought when they were 19? exactly the same thing and it's one of the nicest thing you know you remember things like that sure. billy dunk who was a another player that was great to me south african player john bland there, there's so many people that help you on the way that help you believe a little bit more in yourself so yeah it was it's a growing process the uh the 96 us open so you you were in the cauldron in 94 96 at oakland hills you got a real chance on the inward nine and a couple holes I think he had a three putt. I don't know if it was 13, 14. He made a double maybe right after that. <laughs> you were still seething possibly. Um, but but you shared that you 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 and Monty flew on a, a I think on a private plane that night. Was that the first time you were really gutted? I mean, gutted because you thought, son of a bitch, I could have won this. Well, I probably used some words that are a little worse than that. But yeah, no, that's um I actually had a chance in 95 at Shinnecock. I played with Davis Love, who missed a two-footer on 16. And I think we both finished eighth. So, you know, I played two U.S. Opens and I finished in the top 10 in both. I'm like, hey, this is, you know, this is, a, this is maybe this this suits me. I'm a straight hitter and this works. So um, I'd finished fourth at Augusta that year. Um, that was the, the Norman Felder year. Well, you had the third and, lowest scoring average, I think, in the majors that year behind those two, right? Correct. Yeah, they were the only two. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, just to yeah. feed this large ego that you have now. No, thank you. <laughs> um, but when when I got to Oakland Hills, same thing. I liked the golf course, and and I remember playing with John Morse actually, who had a who, on Sunday who had a really good chance to win. But yeah, I remember hitting a three iron into I'm going to say 14 or 15, and I'd either tied for the lead or I was one back. It might have been tied. So you know you got a handful of holes left. And uh, maybe not even that. And, and I remember having a run at the putt. I had a beautiful three iron, and I ran it past, missed it coming back. And the very next hole is the dog leg left par four. And, and I mean, it's the dumbest decision I've ever done in my life. I'm like, I'm angry. And I took driver and tried to hit it over the corner, clashed around, made double, and then sort of limped my way in. And, and you're right. We, at the end, Monty was a few groups ahead. We had the same agent and Guy Kinnings. He was, Monty is the world's worst flyer. He used to buy two first-class seats, one for himself and his wife. And in those days, you could sit in the jump seat by the pilot. And and he would just go, as soon as the plane took off, he would go to the jump seat. And then about half an hour, he'd come back and say, we're not going to die. The, the pilot's got kids. And I'm like, you know, I mean, it was the dumbest thing in the world. 
So Monty's already nervous and we're about to go to the thing and I'm answering, you know, questions on like, you joked, why did you, you know, what happened? And, you know, the media had been very nice to me in, in America. So you owe them the time to at least answer. So I'm stuck there. Monty's sort of yelling at my wife. I'm like, you know, where is he? We've got to go to the airport, blah, 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 blah. And then finally I get in the car. And now I'm fuming because Monty's pressuring. And we had a private flight to go from there to uh, New York. And then we were catching a flight back to London. And, and I remember uh, we got lost and we stopped at a gas station. And I went up to Monty and I nearly grabbed him by the throat. And I said, Monty, if you don't apologize to my wife, I will kill you. <laughs> And Monty was fine. We calmed down. Guy Kinnings was driving him, and we and uh, we got to the airport. And then Monty was Monty. M Monty's very misinterpreted. He was actually a fun guy to play with, but within a flight, on a flight, close to a flight, you never wanted to be near him. World's worst flyer ever. Maybe that's the reason why he's he, when I when he started playing on the Champions Tour, Frank. You know, he was driving everywhere, and I thought it was delightful. <laughs> like, Monty takes yeah. America. The guy who was, you know, lampooned and vilified for all those years, like, he's now being embraced, and he's driving around, and he's stopping at all these, you know, bedroom communities all over him. Is that, you think that's part of the reason? Oh, it is. He's, that, that's what I mean. It, it was so misinterpreted because, you know, he, the Mrs. Doubt, fine nicknames yes. and all that. And, Monty wanted a perfect world. Everybody thought that Monty was complained like people would, I don't know, click a pen or, you know, it was pre-cell phone days and all that. But he had the same standard when you were hitting the ball. So if you were playing alongside, he expected people to be quiet for you as well. So it wasn't just a selfish endeavor. And he's actually bloody funny, to be honest. I mean, if you got Monty when he was sort of puffing his stuff up there and getting annoyed and his, his very first tournament, uh, we were playing in Italy, Richard Boxall, who's an announcer now, and uh, Boxy's playing really good. It's a Sunday. You know, Monty's been a pro for two for two seconds, basically. And um, Box, you know, Richard, you know, is, is making a ton of birdies. And all of a sudden, he's getting pretty close to the lead. It's going to be a big check, a lot of money. And he makes like triple. And I remember Monty, he's got about four holes to go. And Monty goes, Richard, you got to take it with a pinch of salt. And Boxy is absolutely fuming. So Monty's actually doing all right. And like Monty makes like double up 18, which costs him a lot of money. And Boxy goes, Monty, pinch your salt. <laughs> so, hey, you give it, you take it. But yeah, they were the good old days. Yeah. Um, so here you are, you're, you're throwing punches in the biggest <laughs> events against the best players. And then you get diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis uh, in 1997. What was the diagnosis intellectually, emotionally for you? Uh, was it was it very hard to process? Impossible to process? What was that? What was that time period like? Yeah, it, it happened at Honda. I remember playing Honda, and I couldn't get my watch on. So I went to the fitness trailer, and they're like, you know, my wrist had blown up, and I'm like that that doesn't look good. And I'm like, you know, thirty six 37 years about you know you're 10 foot tall bulletproof you know you should go and see a doc doctor said you know i think you should see someone uh you know a little bit you know better than myself so i was with img img got me into the into the mayo in rochester and i spent three days there and then you know you're still thinking like it's going to be i don't know swelling i must have banged it or whatever and then you know you sit on a chair and and dr ian hay who was a 
Scotsman, very keen golfer, sits you down and goes, you know, you've got inflammatory polyarthritis, both wrists, elbows, and shoulders. And I'm like, you know, you play golf with your arms. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't sound very good. And he goes, well, it's, it's not. So I remember being prescribed three drugs, prednisone, Plaquenil. Plaquenil is like a mild form of chemotherapy. And Emuran. Emuran's an autoimmune suppressant. So if I got a cold, I finished up having to go to hospital. And it it was uh, with the, what they knew then, it's probably, I don't know, the, maybe it's a little over dramatic, but it felt like a death sentence for a golfer, really. And I kept trying to play for a few more years. And a couple of things happened that year. They changed the rule on the PGA Tour um, because they, the, I should have got rookie of the year. I broke the money, money record for a rookie. And they said, because I played more than, I don't know, they made a number of 10 events that I couldn't be eligible for rookie of the year. So I'll always remember Stuart Sink's rookie year was 1997 because Stuart Sink got rookie of the year in 1997. But um, yeah. So by the end of the year, I'm like, what do you do? And then, and then you start taking medication and, and then it's got side effects, you know, ligament and tendon, you know, it's, it's a steroid, prednisone, you heavy dose of it, you start blowing up, you start putting on weight, you feel like crap and you get worse and worse. And then basically I, I started doing more and more research, spoke to different type of doctors. And it, the question really was, if you're going to keep playing golf, you're going to keep doing this, this is probably going to kill you in the end. I mean, the damage it's going to do to your liver and all that, or stop playing golf and maybe taper off the medicine. So I chose the latter. Frank, years ago, I, I did the, the Carolina Panthers um, broadcasting responsibilities uh, for a couple years. And, and there was a guy, good player. He was a defensive back. His name was Mike Minter, and he had to retire uh, early as he was bone on bone with his knees. And Jake DeLoma, who was the quarterback at the time, um, was sitting in the back of the room when they did this retirement announcement. And I was watching Jake just, just not even blink listening to Mike Minter, and I asked Jake afterwards, I said, you seem particularly locked in. And he said, yeah, I think it's important to always remind yourself that your own athletic mortality can, can be facing you any moment. And I don't say this morbidly. I've always found it fascinating because golf, you can play longer. But most of these pursuits, it's over you know, early 30s, gosh, NFL players 28, 27, um, facing the mortality of something you dreamed about doing, you were doing it exceptionally well. Did you get beyond it a year later, five years later, still living to some degree with something taken from you? Um, I'm probably not the person to answer that. My wife, my daughter would, would probably give you a, a truer answer. Um, I'm going to say five, six years later, I, I was not okay with it, but I, I, I kept trying to play for a few years and I guess I got lucky because of TV, to be honest, because in the end TV was in a roundabout way to answer the question. TV was like when I was a kid, it was a team sport. Right. That's what TV is. TV is a team sport. And um, Vince Scully, the great Vince Scully said, you know, like golf's one of the hardest one because you have to pass the baton around. Um, and then I realized that all the anger that I'd built up, my, my, all my contemporaries were doing 
I've known Vijay Singh for, I don't know, 40 years. So to see a guy, you know, people talk about his, some of the things in, in, in his life. You know, if you've gone to Fiji, the chances of someone coming from Fiji being a great player, are, they're, they're non-existent. So to see him get to world number one and, and be the you know the winningest player over the age of 40 was incredible. Ernie Else, you know, four-time major champion. Monty, um, how good he was. I mean, I, the list goes on. I don't want to really miss anybody out. But my contemporaries were still playing. And actually, I remember Ernie was annoyed at me because he was like, you're quitting. And I'm like, I, dude, I don't have a choice. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to do this voluntarily. So, you know, I felt anger. All the people that I'd finally got to know and I'd finally started to believe myself as a player, yeah, that had stopped. And then and then when I started doing TV, and I didn't want to do TV, as you know, I, we talked about that. I didn't want to do it. But then my, my wife goes, you know, like, have you ever looked around, around the world? Like, you, you know, you think you're hard done by? And I did. And I, there I am, like, out of all the places in the world to live in, right there in there, Orlando, and there's a fledgling network starts up that's going to give you a chance where you could make some mistakes in that. So it, when I started to change the perspective, I realized golf was still giving me everything in my life. It had got me through my parents' divorce. It had got me into a career and it was giving me another chance. So I actually really was pretty, pretty damn lucky. The, the television thing you know, you mentioned the team sport. You know, you always say things, and I go, God, he always says the appropriate thing. Uh, you had a teammate who was a new teammate, Mark Rolfing, and he showed an affection um, and an inclusion for you, encouraging you early on. Um, you know, you think, God, you know, this is uncomfortable. Maybe it's clumsy. I, you know, I'm not talking enough. Maybe I'm talking. It's weird. It's a weird thing. It's, you know, all the things, the dexterity you had as a golfer, you got to rely on on a different aptitude. Um, when did you feel comfortable speaking, being seen, talking about the game? Did it take six months, a year? Never, to be honest. I don't. Oh, think, come on, uh, Frank. No, 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 no. No, 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 no uh, I, yeah, I feel more comfortable. But every show, even now. I get anxious before I do a show. And but that's I'm, excitement, isn't it? Not not correct. nervousness. Not not correct. Just uh, yeah. Just like when I played, I I always thought that, you know, when you're about to tee off, um, even half an hour before that, like, what's the day going to bring? TV is just like that. If you want to just lay it up and go there and go, here we go. But like, you know, it's just down there. You know, Asia Pacific Amateur Championship, right? There's 120 players. You have zero chance of learning all those players in a week. And there you are, you know, and it's their, it's their day or their week. And you have an obligation to get it right. And you just know you could stay up all night. You're not going to be able to prepare well enough. So you, you're like, God, you know, I got to do how, you know, how, how good can I do it? So yeah, I, I got more comfortable um, speaking, obviously in front of the camera. Um, I always wanted to do live golf though, because I yes. guess that was the, was almost like fulfilling the bit that missed out. And the very first event I ever did, which was in Hawaii, Keith Urshlin was the producer. I sat next to Mark Rolfing and also the host was Jim Kelly. And, you know, there's little things that nobody nobody tells you. And, you know, I, I, I prepared for the broadcast like I would for a golf tournament. I went out and looked at the golf course. But no one had sort of told me that we look at holes in reverse. You know, you look at them back down the fairway. So... I almost felt 
dyslexic is do I say the bunkers on the right or do I say the bunkers on the on the left you know because it's on the right the way I'm looking at it but it's on the left for the player and and so I would sort of stop and go and not 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 know what to say and I remember Jim Kelly taking me out for dinner that night and I sort of half quit after about 45 minutes because I thought this isn't going to work out and he goes, why did you quit? And I'm like, well, and I'd never really quit on anything. And uh, and I said, I didn't quit. So we had a couple of drinks and he asked me the question again. I said, well, it's stupid. It's all, you know, it's all back to front. And so he got out of, out of me the issues that I was having. And to this day, I still get texts from Jim Kelly and just every, every now and again on something small, like how big is the trophy, you know, who made it just like the little nuances that I think are important in, in golf and um, or even smiling, believe it or not. The first time I ever did Augusta, I was so nervous sitting in. I'd taken over from a friend who sadly is not doing very well. Right. Peter Oosterhaus. Yep. And um, so there I was benefiting from someone else's melody sitting in the thing. And I'm like, it, it's the quietest place of the golf course. I'm not Jim Nance. I mean, I'm a, I'm a analyst and I'm, I'm in a sort of, prosaic part of the golf course and i remember getting a text and you're not meant to have your phones at augusta we all know that and it was one from jim and it just said smile and um so that so yeah you get more comfortable you do but but i think you owe it to the viewer to to continually try and get better and better and better the um the the team stuff look i i um you know, you you were on a great team with 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 Lerner, and you actually just work with Rich again, and you get to work with mm. him periodically with the crossover with Golf Channel CBS. But you know that that you and Brandel and and Matt Haggerty and and you know all the people with Rich is is the ultimate elegant traffic cop. Um, but you wanted to do live golf. You that mm. you 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 did, and you go to CBS. Um, and in the transition that's occurred there, not only from Lance to Seller Shy now as, as the lead producer, but with you and Trevor replacing Nick, um, and Dottie obviously is firmly entrenched, and so is Ian, and Jim's a legend. But, but that, that's a fair amount of change over the last five years. How do you know you have chemistry as a team? Because you guys have it. You can, you can hear it. You can feel it. As somebody who leans forward and watches golf the way that I do, and a lot of people do, how did you guys knew? How did you know that you know what this team's going to be good? And Colt, I, I didn't mention Colt knows. Do you have a, a a great relationship with? You needle the shit out of each other, um, <laughs> and that I like that as a viewer. I want that. I want to know you guys like each other by by taking shots at each other in an affectionate way. Um, how do you know you have good chemistry as a team? Great question. Um, I think you experiment first, first and foremost. Um, uh, you know, C CBS have been they've been great. To me. They really have. It's going to be sad to see Sean McManus step down yep. last year because I remember when I was contemplating making the move. You know, you're you're on a phone call with Sean McManus and. At that early on in the piece, I didn't realize his dad was Jim McKay. And there, I was a kid, 1972, growing up and hearing this broadcaster talk about, sadly, what was a, a horrible event in sport. And But this guy, I thought, was meant to be a sports broadcaster, and there he is handling something other than that. And it, oddly enough, it reminded me of, of uh, one of the most proudest moments 
with CBS. Um, and it's a, it's a sad way to bring it up, but the handling of Kobe Bryant. Yes. You know, we hadn't worked together as a unit for a little while and we're about to come on the air and we're hearing this, you know, this tragedy has happened and hearing Jim, you know, literally 30 seconds to show because, you know, we, we had a golf show planned out, but you have a superstar and, and hearing all those people working to get the story right. It had to be right. It had to be right. Amanda Bellionis did a great interview with Tiger Woods too. So I think when you start putting people in the right place, and 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 there's a legacy there too, not just from Frank Chikinium and Lance Barrow, but you know Peter Costas. I learned from Peter Costas. I, I enjoyed working with Gary McCord too. Gary, you know, I think has helped Colt, um, and I think it's the same thing. I'm much older than Colt, but there's an obligation. I love working with him. He's fun. Um, he 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 can. He's dangerous, which is good. That's what you should be. But he's smart. He's good. And these are his contemporaries. So he's extremely current. And, and I just think, going back to your question about chemistry, I, I think chemistry happens when you allow people to get their best stuff out. Like Dottie's super prepared. You can lead to Dottie. I'm a whole announcer. That's my job now. I'm not an analyst. You could you can lead. I know I can lead to Dottie in a hundred different ways. I know I can lead to Colt in a, di in a different way or Mark Emmelman. You know, Trevor's now jumped into Nick. I, I really enjoyed working with Nick because it was weird. As a player, I didn't know him. And then, I mean, it's it's amazing these sort of ebbs and flows over the last few years. And I remember doing Greensboro just a couple of years ago. And there was Jim and myself and Nick for his farewell. And that you can't make up. You just start working with people. We'd gone through COVID together. They developed the super booth idea and it was going to stop. And and then you realize that actually you're all part of people's lives. Mm. So, and I think that's where the chemistry develops. You allow it to happen. It's trust. It's giving people a chance to, to do their best stuff. It's listening. Um, you know, it's just, and it's reacting. And then before you know it, um, you, people go, hey, that's hopefully that's a good listen, but it's well-led, you know, sellers is sellers is, has done an amazing job, I think, because golf's changed now. Te televised golf, you know, with it's full of stats. It's different. You can't have the the Ben Wrights of the world and the Longhurses. I mean, everybody says they're great, and I still li listen to some of the older stuff. But if you put it on now, people will go. They say it's great, but it's not what people want now. They want to know why that. You know, you got to have launch monitor data. You got to have this. You got to have stats. You got to have that. You know sport as a whole has changed so therefore the announcer has to change too so but chemistry yeah it's a it's that's the key and i think you know nbc had it too you know johnny who i got to, you know i've been lucky to work with a lot of people you know peter ellis being was great to me um but you know johnny and you know and gary and and um and rog they, they were they were a great trio great trio and that's no disrespect to mark rolfing as well they they had a you know golf's been lucky with some of the people some of the groups of people they've had calling the game. I think you you hit on I think the most important word which was trust and you were faced with something with the Kobe tragedy that was unorthodox. Uh, I was it was put in front of y'all um, and it's situations like that to me are very revealing uh, and it reveals things and there's a book that I I'm a big believer in it's called. Um, the Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And, and it's about that you, you don't look at obstacles at obstacles. You just look at them as, as part of the journey. 
and, and how you deal with them. And trust is a huge part of that. It's leaning on other people at times where the rundown is not the rundown anymore, Frank. Mm. You know, we're not just calling golf and, and go to Amanda and she's got Tiger and all those things. Um, I'm sure that was a, you know, you look back on a day like that, as you pointed to, that was the beginning of something um, that, that is, I think, probably reinforced on a regular basis. You guys sound like you're having fun. You know what that does? That makes it more fun for the viewer. Um, and and you, you guys have you guys have a great team. I, I'm going to try to pack in as much as I can here in those next 15 minutes because it's important for people to hear your thoughts on this stuff. I know you're concerned about the game, um, about the separation between the recreational game and the professional game, that the, that the Rubicon that now exists between what I look like hitting a shot and what the best players in the world who are aliens to begin with look like, um, the divide may be too wide. Is it too wide to be narrowed ever? No, not if people do the right thing. Um, you're right, it, it's massive. When I used to play in pro-ams, for example, every now and again, you know, and I'm talking a wooden wood, which makes me sound very archaic, but, you know, an amateur would pop one past you and he'd puff his chest out and it was great. And you'd play into similar tees on a par three, maybe go back one tee box. You know, I, when I'm doing, you know, some of my uh, reconnaissance during a pro-am day, you know, the the amateur's at 160 yards and the, and the pro goes back 230 you know, 70 yard walk. So he's not even talking to his amateur partner, you know, like with all the things that were great about pro-ams, even the fact that they make nine whole pro-ams now, it, it was a huge part of the sport. So, I, I, you know, we've sanitized it and it, it's quite simple. It's, it really is quite simple. You know, you, you, it, it, the ball with the elite players goes too far. You can, and it's the club as well. And they knew it was going to happen. You know, the, to try and put it in a nutshell, I remember 2013 Muirfield. I'm walking the golf course and I run into Tim Clark. And Tim Clark putted with a long putter, anchored, right? And I was uh, on the golf show. I was against the anchored puttering because I believe the putter should be the shortest club in the bag. I really do think it's a game of skill. Baseball, if you can't make it to first base, you're not allowed to play. It, it, as hard as that may seem, right? That's one of the rules. And I just thought putter should be, it shouldn't be anchored. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for Tim Clark, and we're we're arguing, straight, you know, talking in the middle of fairway, and I'll never forget Tim's reply. He go and and he goes, you know, he said every single thing they've done in golf helps the long hitter, and and Tim is not a long hitter. Yep, right. Won a Players Championship, and he said finally they do something that helps the normal player or someone like me, and they take it away. Three years later, the anchor ban, January 1st, the anchor ban was done, right? But everything else was allowed to keep going. And I'll never forget that that, uh, that argument. And Bo John Bodenhammer, you've already mentioned his name, there's a quote with the anchored putter, and he said, look, fast forward 50, 100 years, what, how do we want the game to look like? And I would say the same thing right now. It's, you know, it, it's not about taking fun away. You know, I very rarely see a mid-iron hit in. Some of the, one of the best holes I saw all year was the the 18th hole at the Scottish Open, courtesy of a 30-mile head breeze, and Bob McIntyre hit two woods, made this amazing four. I thought he was going to win. McElroy birdie 17, 71st hole, and then hits two or three iron in and makes three. 
And it, it was a great finish, but it took a 30 mile an hour wind into their face. It took unusual set of circumstances. We used to see that all the time, you know, the, through previous generations. The, the Rory McIlroy's, they want to hit those clubs. But it is, you know, like I, I think Dustin Johnson was asked, I'm going to say four or five years ago, what was the longest club he hit into a par four year? He said six iron. I mean, there's 14 clubs in the bag, so we're not utilizing that. And sadly, too, we can get into a debate on course architecture. I know some people don't like it, and they'll go, it's old-fashioned or whatever, but golf golf is one of the advantages of our game is we don't have fixed parameters. So you've got to take your game and play in all these different, like the sand belt. And it's not designed for 350-yard tee shots and a flip wedge. You miss it all. And we got bunkers in the rough. Everybody goes, oh, tighten the fairways, make it harder. But um, I mean, a bunker in a rough is like putting a tree, like an oak tree in the middle of your living room. It's, it's, you don't need it, right? I mean, a bunker in the rough, what, so you got to mow around it or not mow around it? It was crazy, right? Bunkers were designed so that the ball would roll into it, same as greenside bunkers. So we've, we've allowed the parameters of the game to keep going and going and going and going and going and going. And here we are, not by accident. And also remember too, we are the only sport in the world where the player gets to choose their equipment. So, so yeah, I I, I think we've you know we're at a, a watershed moment. I really do hope that people support the USGA and the RNA. Um, you know they need all the help, but you know even just changing the driver from forty eight to forty six, I mean people kicked and screamed. They really did. And it's just just crazy. The the COR of a driver. The driver is now the easiest club in the bag to hit. The driver was about skill. It was an advantage. It should always be an advantage to be a long straight hitter. I, you never want to take that away. But if you give everybody 30 yards, what's the point? Yeah, Frank, I'd go back. I, I, I've always loved the total driving stat in, in 1980 when Nicholas, the combined you know, distance and accuracy of 23, 13th distance, 10th in accuracy. Nobody has been in the 20s since, and that was with obviously a small persimmon head, um, and he was 40 years old. Uh, that number is kind of like Bob Beeman. I mean, it's going to mm. – that will never be touched again. Um, let me ask you quickly about Liv. Uh, in 24 months, what is all of this – what do you think it will look like? Well, um <clears throat> You know, live is a divorce, right? It's a divorce, and there's nothing amicable when you when you go two different ways. It's the best way to put it. And so all the acrimony has come out. Uh, you know, if you if you if live never happened, would the people have gone talk so poorly of the PJ Tour? I think that we all know the answer to that. Does that mean that the PJ Tour is is cookie cutter clean? No, I don't. Um, you know, we never get invited to the mandatory meeting to explain TV, for example, to the players. Players have no idea of the TV product, right? So there, there's lots of things I think that the PGA Tour can brush up on too. Um, you know, I was reading yesterday where you know Rory now wants you know like Piff to be part of part of the thing. Yes. My biggest concern, you know, Aramco, for example, is the largest company in the world. It overtook Apple, I think, back in May. And if you watch Formula One, you see Aramco there, you know, here, there, and everywhere. And Sky do a great job of 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 doing that. It's shown on ESPN over here, and there's very few commercials. So I don't know. One pipe dream would be to embrace that money if you want to. Hopefully get an Aramco involved. That reduces the commercial load so people can have golf with left commercials. 
that actually would be a big way about it. But, you know, I think there's also a realization, you know, we don't rate high enough as, as much as it pains me to say. Golfers are overpaid compared to every other sport. No one wants to admit that. They don't want to say it. If, if live never came along, I mean, we're going to have 20, so many 20 million plus persons and we don't have the ratings. We'll globally, and I've used this a bunch of times, volleyball worldwide rates higher than golf. I don't see volleyball players racing around in private planes and all sorts of things. So we are at a, we're in a really weird space. So I would love to have an answer for 2024, but if, if, Jay Monaghan and his team stick with obviously the statement, which was September 11, and decide to go in a different different direction. We're going to have a war. We really will, because you have money on one side, and I know Fenway is a very good group. They own Liverpool and all sure. that, but but you're inviting competition, and this is it's like it's going to be like Coke and Pepsi. Do you uh, in five years? Um, what what do you envision Phil Mickelson's? role in the game is i mean is it is it is that too challenging to answer right now and it would be just it would that's a hard one but i always go back to you know forever's a long time and and you know contrition the cleansing of people historically in sports who've been blights temporarily uh, there's a lot of them do you think that there will be at some point a re-entry for him at a level that we always thought was going to be commensurate with who he was uh, no, uh, no is the easy answer. Okay. And it's sad because, you know, I was at the CBS, we called the PGA championship yep. where he won. And I'm like, you know, when you get to be part of like a, uh, I was at Zozo when Tiger got 82 wins, Yep. um, you know, Phil winning that PGA championship, it's like, it's a well moment. And the way in which he did it, I, I'm like, dude, you, you have, you have any, you know, wing foot, Johnny Miller riding off on a, on a, on a white stallion, all, all those things had been redeemed. Phil had a record that nobody else had and that Tiger Woods isn't going to have. And I'm like, finally, you know, you're, you're complete in this generation. And so I, I look at that Phil as a contemporary as well. I played a lot against him that I admired his skill, his ability. And then I see the statesman role which is really what it is now. And it's, it's very disastrous. So um, it's another one. I, I, it, it saddens me the books that are written, obviously. So at the moment we're only hearing the bad stuff about Phil. Um, yeah. They're all true to be honest, but I'll, you know, I've suffered with Phil, whether it's a president's cup on the other side and some of the things that I know he can, how he can behave. But I also know that for our own foundation, for example, if we ask for a, a master's flag to be signed by Phil. Phil and Amy used to send two back, not one. So, you know, that sadly, Phil is, is, is always going to be, I mean, there's duo personalities and, and it's a shame. So yeah, it, it's, I, I don't know. That's, that's the tragic part about it right now is that I don't think we can, we can answer that question fairly until he hangs the clubs up. Um, let me ask you very quickly about, about the, the whole Ryder cup thing. Um, I, I've referenced the book Legacy by James Kerr about the, the famous All Blacks. Um, I know mm. Luke Donald read the book. I know Paul McGinley has read that book. Uh, Frank, I'm of the belief that the European Ryder Cup team is one of the great sports franchises in the last 40 years. Um, they're caretakers. There's humble obligation to being a part of the team. Um, 
I'm not asking you to, to, to affirm that, um, but why do you think they're so good at doing what they do in a sport that's not inclined to be that way and only doing it once every two years? Um, I'm glad you mentioned the All Blacks there because you know, New Zealand now has 5 million people and consist- consistently rated as one of the, the best rugby teams in the world regarded as the greatest rugby side for the last 100, 120 years. And it is. It's a borderline religion um, in there, the, the, the culture. So it's a culture, right? So when you put on an all-black jersey, you don't put on your jersey. You put on every other jersey that's been put on a man. And you get a number, too. You're a number. Because if you're number 145 or whatever, it means there's 143 before you. So there's something to stand for. And when I first played in Europe, you know, good friend Sam Torrance, for example, you know, Sam made the winning part with the great, the arms up in the air. It's a phenomenal picture. And, you know, to this day, you know, if you speak to a Sam Torrance, for example, about a Ryder Cup or a Seve, who was a great friend too in the days on what it meant, it's, you know, you almost started crying. And it's very, very similar to the way in which the All Blacks culture. And it's, they did play for a tour because they always felt, um subservient you know pj tour is everything right and just to go back to equipment just for a bit to explain it too Mm -hmm. when people talk about rolling the ball rolling the ball back remember that's what that's what europe did that's what the rest of the world did rest of the world used to use a small ball one of the best things to happen in golf was when we standardized and when the rest of the world started using the big ball, you got Greg Norman, Nick Price, Nick Faldo, Bernard Langer, everybody, Steris, all other ball. You got a growth in world golf. They got better. So that also fits into that time slot. So they, they, they were fighting for their tour. They were using an American golf ball, trying to beat America. It stood for a lot. And, and when you hear about their team meetings, it, it literally was like, like playing for a side. And it was more than, than who they were. And Ken Schofield was a big part of that, um, as is Tony Jacklin. You know, when you hear Tony Jacklin talk about it, when he changed the system to make them, it's a little bit in a weird way. I remember just the same way I was brought up. You know, you didn't think you were good enough. You know, Tony had won two major championships. Says, you know, we are good enough. And the biggest one is when uh, Nick Faldo talks about it better than anyone. When they lost at Palm Beach by a point and Sevy celebrated. And they're all thinking, we lost. Why are you celebrating? And it was, and Seve's words were, because they know we're good. And that's who they are. And that's a legacy. So they'll preserve the legacy. And it's hard. It's hard for America because they're so deep. It's hard. You know, Europe has always had a nucleus. It had the big five for so long. And, and just like the All Blacks, for example. And you pass that along slowly. The turnover on the, on the U.S. team is always quicker. And I don't think the President's Cup helps them either. They have to play, you know, every year. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you said as well is that, look, they, they have a cause, like their tour. They know where they came from. Uh, and even though I think the PGA of America people, they're fine people. Um, there's not a cause there. And you can say, well, they're playing for their flag. I get that. But there's a personal component uh, that I think is, I think it's helpful. I think there's fuel there that they get. Um, from knowing how tangibly valuable the property is to the mere existence of the tour they're all a product of. And by the way, that Seve thing, I mean, that's 40 years ago. 
40 mm. years ago, almost, you know, a couple months ago in Palm Beach. Uh, all right, let me get you out of here with these five quick questions. Um, I don't I don't know how much recreational golf you played. You had a job and you 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 know certainly were committed to your job. Is there a golf course you never played that you wish you had? Yeah, Pine Valley. You never Everybody played talks. Pine Valley. You never did. Turn it down, yeah. That Cypress Point uh is is another one that I, I always I always thought I'd play it, but for some reason Pine Valley, I just it reminds me, I think, the pictures I've seen a little bit more like Sunningdale and also New Zealand. So I would have loved to loved to have gone there. Frank, you 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 should go there. You should go there and and have a meal and walk the golf course. It's it's a one of one. You, you... yeah, but but I, I like to have unfinished business too. I think if if you if you tick every box, what do you got left? So it's kind of nice having having uh, something to still look forward. No, to. I'm listen. I'm a huge believer, yeah. in you got to have something to look forward to. Mm. All right, who is the most interesting person in golf that didn't or doesn't play for a living or write or talk about the game for a living? Well, that doesn't play golf doesn't play golf or write or be seen talking about golf could be a producer could be a researcher somebody in the industry of golf who you think is wildly interesting who people don't know well we have a, a we have a rain man called josh pick and josh you were talking about chemistry you know we've got an email sorry a text chain and there's, you know, there's like three different text chains in amongst the CBS guys and all that. And Josh religiously goes through whether it's Twitter X, what do you want to call it? Social media, you name it. SI, you know, any golf article, you name it. It's come. It just fills your phone up to the, to the point like, hey, this is the off season, pal. Uh, religious. <laughs> I met Colin Morikawa actually at Hartford through Josh Pick. He knows every caddy on tour. And he's literally rain man when it comes to that. So yeah, I would say Josh Pick. The world would say, who the hell's Josh Pick? Like I said, if I if I need to know like somebody's caddy, what they do, I remember once saying, oh, call him more a car. We'll, we'll hit a little draw just to this flag. And I got a text on my phone, literally on this show, call him doesn't hit draws. <laughs> and you're like, bang, like that. So yeah, he knows his golf. And I, to be honest, I don't even know if Josh has ever played golf. That's the answer. That's yep. I didn't know he was the answer, but that's the answer. I know that mm. you have a great affection for researchers in general um, because they live and die with it. All right, um, what are you better at now than you than you were twenty years ago? Lying on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, with the, my dog. Oh, there you go. The last book or movie that made Frank Nabilo cry. Well, hey, I'm a chick flick guy. You can't embarrass me like that. Rom-com? Every Christmas, I'm going to watch Love Actually. I'm going to watch... Uh, yeah, this is a terrible one. If you ask my wife, she's going to say Bodyguard. I mean, I'm a sap when it comes to chick flicks. I mean, that you've just blown my cover there, really. I mean, oh, so so uh, when yeah. you watch Bodyguard and they have that big crescendo scene where... And he, yeah, she, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. by the plane, <laughs> yes, yes, okay. Well, I was a Whitney Houston fan, yeah, I will always love you. I mean, yeah, this song, if I hear it, yeah, yeah, you name it. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. last question you can give one shot back to anybody in history to hit again. Wow, 
Wow. Great question. Um, it's too many, really, isn't it? So you got to. There's a Hubert lot. Green. Hubert Green. Hubert Green. Yeah, at Augusta when he finished. Scott Hoke's close, to be honest, the two-footer, but Hubert Green, just to finish with a little story. Um, I never I never really played with Hubert, and, but I ran into him, locker room, and all sorts of things, and I was doing a uh, an event and down there, um, and it was at his golf course, and we're out with a crew, Golf Channel days, just sitting there, and Hubert and his wife were at the bar, and he came across... And he said, hi, it was great. I introduced him to all the people in the bar. It was mm. all the people in our group, about eight people, right? And he left. See you later, great. Might have saw him on saw him on the range or whatever it was. Went to pay, we went to get the bill, picked up by Hubert. He didn't know any of those people at, whatsoever. But yeah, he was he, he deserved that. He he deserved the masters. Yeah, Hubert Green. I thought maybe you'd go Monty second at Wingfoot in 06, your 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 travel companion. But no, the, I, I, I like Monty complaining the rest of his life. I really do. And I want that because he will dig his feet in and he will puff his chest and that's the best Monty. So if Monty had that, that's why Monty still plays now, which is great. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. No, it's no, true. No. You, I, you, can't, you can't give Monty the whole cake and the candles. No, that's true. I, but I will say his reaction to that strike is the most perfect. What is that? Was yeah. what he said. Um, he would hit that eight on. Oh, he, I think he hit eight on in there. It, that's right side of the fairway you, to a right pin. Yeah, I mean you couldn't you couldn't have made that shot for him in his career. And he, you know, people he could flat out play that guy. He could flat out play. That's a that's the one shot he would want over. There's no doubt whatsoever. But like I said, a little a little bit of misery with Monty is perfect. It's especially at dinner time. It, <laughs> no, you're you're right about that. Listen, I value the time. I appreciate you, Frank. Thank you. Hey, Gary, great catching up. Thanks, Mike. Well, thank you again to Frank Nabilo. Frank is the real thing. He was a great player, and he's got chops, man. He's got chops as a person. He's got the bona fides in the game of golf. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Most importantly, thank you to all of you out there for watching and listening to this Five Clubs Conversation. 